Well, first of all, thank you very much for being here with Red Earth. I had a chance to watch it before the festival, and I was really quite impressed by it, quite taken by it. I'm Science fiction is honestly my favorite genre, and I love when filmmakers are able to bring a very personal aspect to the storytelling. And I think that was a great, I, I think what you guys did with Red Earth is an excellent example of that. Brian, thank you, man. <clears throat> um, where did, I mean, the, obvi the obvious first question is, where did the idea for Red Earth come from? Well, there was an inciting set of incidents for sure. I mean, I don't know if you two heard this story, but the week that George Floyd was murdered, on the Saturday of that same week, two, uh, SpaceX sent it out to outer space, these two private astronauts. Mm -hmm. Two events, like, ostensibly completely unrelated. But I was at a meeting, and people were checking in, and somebody mentioned George Floyd's murder. That's where their mind was. And this other person just innocently, in their own reality, mentioned the, the launch happening Saturday. And that triggered something in my head, like, this is like a collision of ideologies and realities. And I don't know if you remember, there's like a very distinct image. You can pull, you Google that moment and like you'll see then President Trump with Vice President Pence like overlooking the launch. Mm. And like that was 100% the moment where I'm like, Red Earth is going to be a thing. And I, I there was, you know, the man in the high, a man in the high castle, I'd read that book relatively recently. I was already reading about getting off planet. This was like at the height of the pandemic where it's right. like, wouldn't it be nice to just escape this reality? And I was thinking of that novel of like, we're living in some version of the world that he was fictionally writing about. And, and I mean, I don't mean that in some kind of fictive narrative sense. It's like those rockets that are going up were a direct result of Werner von Braun, this Nazi scientist conscripted by the Americans, Operation Paperclip and all. It's like, that's like the dominant history that people don't talk about, but that's like the history mm -hmm. of American rocketry, literally born out of Nazi Germany, SS officer, running NASA, the Goddard Space Center. And I'm like, we're in some twisted reality. <laughs> and the conflict of like this man being murdered as part of like a long legacy of slavery, colonization, 500 years. And then these guys sending out the rocket, it's like, that's akin to Christopher Columbus, like in the narrative of colonization, those two private scientists will be part of the story of like, when we get to Mars, oh, this was the beginning of the corporatization of space. Hmm. I, I really love the fact that what the storytelling does in this movie, because of the fact that it you don't have an extravagant budget to create these visuals, but I would argue, but the visuals are that are created are quite striking and quite uh, and and they they conjure something in the viewer as we're watching the film and as we're hearing the witnesses to these events talk about them. Um, what what were some of the what were some of the challenges and what were some of the initial ideas that 
you all uh, work through in terms of creating the visual aspect of the film? I mean, Kate, I want you to dive in, but like just to contextualize this, I think something for me that's really fascinating about the process, for, like industrial movies and even independent artisanal movies, it's like there's one director of photography. It's like I don't even can't name one film where there's two directors of photography. And I mean, the long story short was like this is two planets and really four timelines, like radically different you know, aesthetics. Mm -hmm. And like, we could go on and on about it, but like, I was like, Kate Hinshaw, she's a cinematographer on, in, in two worlds. She has the industrial cinema background, so she could run the soundstage and analog filmmaker. So, I mean, do you want to riff a little on just how we were creating Yeah, those? I mean, it's a lot of mixed formats um, that we use, which I think kind of speaks to the different timelines we see throughout the film. Um, and, you know, we had, George did um, some medium format photography in it and shot out in the desert. And then I did um, shooting on the soundstage. Uh, and I guess one of the more interesting things we did um, was I shot with the digital Bolex, um, which is a camera that has a 16 millimeter sensor. Um, it's a very um, niche camera. It's, it's not really in existence anymore, but it creates a 16 millimeter film look on digital. So it has a bit of this cult following, and I had that camera that I used, um, some of my lenses that I use on my Bolex, my 16 millimeter camera, some lenses from like the 1920s on that um, camera in order to create this kind of retro-futurist um, video transmission. It's almost like we've gone to Mars and we're doing video transmissions, but we're kind of like back to the beginning of technology. Mm -hmm. It's like rainy, you know, we, we kind of are, are creating this space where uh, this video diary um, we're seeing the kind of grain in that and, and the kind of, um, in some ways, like loss of quality and, and the tr transmission from Mars to Earth. And then we did a lot with lighting. Um, we, you know, had our Mars bunker, which was a lot, a lot of atmosphere and haze. And then, um, you know, we had uh, this shack that we did the production design for as well as the cinematography. We really just, like, built this entire shack-looking kind of uh, <laughs> set that... Um, yeah, it was just really dingy, and that we shot more documentary style. So I think it's almost just like each character has their own style of shooting that we explored. Okay. Um, I, I love the images in this movie. Were there any particular other movies or just other uh, or images, or picture, whether it's pictures, whether it's movies that weren't that you were inspired by in creating the visual look for this movie? I mean, oh, hell yeah. I mean, <laughs> I'll try to be brief, but I mean, I'm a cinephile. I love the movie. So it's like, we could just talk about that for an hour and not exhaust the inspiration. But like the like big touchstones, to try and be brief, would be La Jetée, like Chris Marker. Like you mentioned the medium format photography. It's like, well we can create a whole world just with these still images and soundscape. So that film has just been swimming in my head for 25 years. And obviously it's like a direct homage to it with the still black and white mm -hmm. medium format. In fact, some of it was shot on a, um, the same uh, Spotmatic 35 millimeter Pentax that just out of like curiosity, I was like, I'm going to use that same camera. <laughs> um, Planet of the Apes. For obvious narrative reasons, but actually... We literally shot at some of the same locations as Planet of the Apes, 
which actually is a story I feel like I should tell you because it's unbelievable. Matt, the, the guy, the only person I knew who was like going to be crazy enough to do what I wanted to do, Matt Devine, he knew the Southwest. So he's like, we'll set up in Kanab, Utah, and that gets us close to Lake Powell and all these sites where Planet of the Apes was filmed. And I'm like, well, good enough. We'll start with that. But we get there, and I meet this um, archaeologist, that the woman running this motel who gave us the whole place for a week for like 125 bucks. Like, she's an associate producer on the film. She got to meet this guy. He's an archaeologist. I meet him on Saturday. He's like, I know where they, the exact locations where they film some of those principal, those key moments in Planet of the Apes, like the monolith that Charlton Heston walks by. Mm-hmm. And he took us out there. That was like Sunday location scout. Monday morning at 4 a.m., we're driving out to the desert to those exact incredible locations that nobody would ever find, even if you told someone where they were. It's like, good luck. And then we filmed actually Point Doom, which is also Planet of the Apes, like the sort of famous, lots of things have been filmed there, but the Statue of Liberty scene. like So Planet of the Apes, and then Craig Baldwin, I don't know if you're familiar with him, but he's probably the most, if I had to pick one filmmaker who's like altered my brain raves irreversibly, it would be Craig Baldwin. To your point about like, it's not a lot of budget, but we can still do a lot with either found images or pseudo found images. They appear to be like these archival images. Um, His film, among others, Tribulation 99, Oh No Coronado, like if nothing else, I hope you include those so people can just hunt them out. I think he has done significant things in like found footage filmmaking and science fiction, obliterating, you know, documentary and fiction. He just obliterates that boundary. It's like you figure it out as a viewer. Mm-hmm. Um, so those were some of the big ones, but and I'll stop because like I said, we could go on forever, but some of the cinematography, paradoxically, however, it's a lot of literary stuff like Octavia Butler, the parable of the sower and this story of this woman just traveling up the coast, like, that inspires the father's and the daughter's narrative. Um, I mentioned A Man in the High Castle, The Drowned World, J.G. Ballard, because that's a, a book about just like the psychologies. And then that's like Enter Kate with like, we're in her world, you know, Cassay's world and, you know, the haze. And that's actually more from those novels and like the images they're producing that are about like psychic realities, not necessarily spectacle, you know? I. I really love the way the narrative is told here. I, I love that you have the title cards that basically act like somebody reading out of somebody's diary. I, I love the way that you use the voiceover, the way you use the characters speaking about their personal experiences, their personal emotions. Really, actually, remind me of Tarkovsky. When you think about Solaris, when you think about Stalker, when it comes to those movies that are very contemplative about humanity's humanity's place in the world in a very existential way. Um, what was, as you were coming up with the structure of the story, what were some of the things that you found yourself uh what were some of the challenges that you found yourself coming up with i mean like the one that you know if you if you look at this film you're like yeah there's obviously no budget but or low no budget it's virtually no budget um but think of like the entire history of literature it's like you can tell a whole world in someone's head with 
like the novel Dune, for example, it's really just like a lot of people's like psychic realities, what they're thinking. And I think it's like a misstep in the history of the movies. Like I'm so glad that you said you you accept the the text because like. People will read, you know, a 2,000-page novel, but a few words in a film, and it's like, <laughs> Jesus Christ. Like, it's like, actually, this is like a picture book. It's like, like the equivalent of a children's book when you think about how much text is in it. But it's with that text, you can world build. Like, so Ursa Harriet's story, it's like, it's, I can be as grand as I want to in Storyland because I don't need to create all this stuff. It's like mm-hmm. she's recounting it. And I think, like, that narrative structure of the epistolary, which the whole thing... Again, like, one could watch it and be like, this film's horrible. There's not even actors interacting. Or it could be like, this is about isolation. We never have one moment where two people even communicate to one another. And that's the whole point of the story, the, yeah. the isolation that would happen going to Mars or just that one could have in their own head based on their own psychic realities. Mm-hmm. And it's all these letters, you know, Talos's letter to nobody wishing, you know, to his daughter, maybe. Kasey speaking to God knows who. And and Ursa's, you know, pistol. And then the Matt track, you know, Matt's character trapped on Earth, sending a message that probably no one's going to receive. Yeah. Now, it, and you think about the, the origins of cinema. I mean, title cards were essential to the... U- were a huge part of telling those stories in the early parts of cinema. And I, you know, and the thing, one of the things that was so great about this film, for me at least, is the fact that it does, it feels like a life lived. It feels like lives that are lived, even if we don't see a lot of people living life, we feel that connection with them through the words they're speaking, through the words that are on the text. We we get the impression, and, you know, it's like one of the, thing I, one of the things that I really loved about this film is the fact that what images we do see tell us everything about the world that these characters are living in. And... Their words tell us everything about how they're living in them. And it's just, it's it's a really striking use of visual and traditional storytelling tactics in order to tell a story that feels very big and broad. Because it really is, like you said, takes place on two two worlds I mean I think even just like it's just like even the fundamental principles of dramatic storytelling which are so simple but yeah it's hard to do I'm not even saying that I'm doing it well but it's like just make the characters suffer that's just all drama has ever been it's just finding unique and interesting ways for people to suffer which just reflects reality it's like life is hard there's like that's the drama comes from that like why have the gods done this to us and I tried to, like, it's truly a psychic exploration. Like, what would it be like to be leaving Earth, never come back? Which is, like, you think about immigrant stories. Like, I'm, I'm the son of two immigrants. Like, that happened to both of my parents, you know, cross-continental or from Cuba mm-hmm. to Florida. But to never return to one's homeland, never to see your family. Imagine doing that to Mars. Like, yeah. 
I think that will happen one day. And then what kind of people would do that? There's <coughs> willingly, right? Like what kind of psychology would it take? You know, like there's a line in there about the, the World War, submarine World War cru- uh, crews of uh, World War Three, like the unmen as some as they're called. Like there's going to be some interesting people who are like, yeah, sign me up to leave Earth forever. And then Kasey's character, you know, she's like a forced immigrant or forced, mm-hmm. you know, she leaves Earth and separates from her father. That's a psych. That's like drama, not Mars, not sci-fi. You know what I mean? That's just yeah. a, a human story that a lot of people can relate to cross-generationally. You know, and it's funny because of the fact that one of the things that... This is my fifth year covering the Atlanta Film Festival. And one of the things that I am so taken by year in and year out is that so many of the stories that we see here are about empathy for different characters and creating connections with characters however simple, however complex. You know, and you don't necessarily think of that when it comes to science fiction. I mean, obviously there are exceptions, but when you think about science fiction, when you think about genre, you're thinking about building the world. You're thinking about taking somebody on a journey to someplace you're not familiar with. And I, I, one of the, one of the things that's so interesting to me this year is just how many great genre films I do think is in there that basically plays that ethos of the festival. And it's it's really, it, you know, and I, I love that this film is a lead. And I also love that it really does create that world in a very straightforward manner but and one that we do feel like we're taking a journey with these characters love that yeah thanks for saying that brian um i i did want to get to one last thing and that is the sound design (laughs) i i am big when it comes to music i'm big when it comes to sound design in films and i'm always fascinated by the way sound is used in films and especially genre films, what were some of the core ideas that you came into this movie with when it came to using music and sound effects? Sure. I mean, the very first thing that was created for this film before even, like, a shot of anything was done was the whole soundtrack. Mm -hmm. And that's, like, something I do with a lot of my films is score the soundtrack. Like, music world builds. Music... I mean, this is, like, things that people you know, no, but music creates the emotional state. It's like, okay, these characters that I'm imagining, let's create a theme here that's like, oh yeah, that feels alienating, or that feels like this could be Kasey's theme. Like, there's a theme that she has that continually emerges, and it just feels right for me, like, as an artist. And I mean, back to, like, Kate and I collaborating as as directors of photography, the industrial model, or like what you said about silent cinema, how, like, of course these intertitles were used... There's like an industrial model and it does its thing, but there's absolutely no reason why it should be followed by an artisanal artist like myself. It's like, I start with the music, there's a world created. Then, like you mentioned, the sound design, like getting eventually to Connor Capozzi, who does all the sound design in this film. He's like a trained sound engineer. But it starts in the beginning, like literally before even filming. I'm like, this is about alienation. 
there's going to be wind in this. So I'm just mm. collecting sounds of wind. I'm literally in the desert with Matt. Like, just we're taking days out of our schedule. We're just recording wind, him walking on these different surfaces. Like, and again, that's like another not a misstep, but like people think of film. Oh, it's visual. It's audio visual. And I honestly think the sound is it. The sound it dictates how you interpret the image, not necessarily the other way around. And also, as a no-budget filmmaker, I can do with like a $600 microphone, I can create all these worlds, but to do cinema, right, with images, like all of a sudden now there's like capital involved and you got to get actors. And we, and we did all that, but um, sound, like, I can spare no expense, Yeah. you know, creatively. And, and then like all that material goes to Connor and then he goes the next level with extreme meticulous detail. Like I think that's like the quality of a good sound designer where it's like, we need to feel the pen of like Talos writing in that journal, and these these what like seem like little elements that actually become like a full immersive experience. So, yeah, thanks for calling out the sound because I think that's part of what makes any film work well. And if you don't notice it, even better because it's just immersive. But um, yeah, that was the sound design in a nutshell. Yes. Uh, thank you very much for your time today. Yeah, I, I'm so glad we were able. Do this. I really was glad we were able to talk about this movie. I really am quite taken by this movie. I hope it has a great reception tonight at the festival. And it's I I I really was quite taken by it. Awesome. Thank, thank you. you, Brian. Thank yeah. you so much. Thank you for your questions. No really appreciate you taking the time to give the film you know a voice and help us get it out in the world. Yeah. Thank you.